Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Channel. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, the third most important center in the world for entrepreneurs, startups, angels, VCs, and incubators. And we're broadcasting to listeners in over 60 countries. Now, the sole purpose of this show is to help you run a successful business and to give you tips to ensure that you're successful. Now, we can't all be great at everything, no matter how hard we try, so I want to help you to identify gaps in your expertise and fix them. We speak every week about technology, so today I want to discuss a simple, non-tech, even old-fashioned technique, added value, and this can really improve your bottom line. Now, when a customer buys a product, they're entitled to expect excellent product and great service. That's what they're paying for. Today, most successful businesses generate 8 out of 10 sales from negligible cost word of mouth and only 2 sales out of 10 from high cost advertising. So that's a great deal. That's the successful companies. The unsuccessful ones are still advertising like hell. But how do you get word of mouth? That's not by satisfying customers. The only way to get great word of mouth which brings you increased loyalty and higher profitability, is by service that absolutely knocks the customer's socks off. Satisfaction will not achieve anything except a one-off sale. Now, in most cases, your product or service doesn't give you a competitive edge because your competitors are probably selling the same stuff. So the product or technology has little influence on the final purchase decision unless you allow it to be commoditized and sell based on price. So there are four levels of customer value. There's the basic level, which is good quality product or service. There's the expected level, which probably contains an explanation of benefits and features and also has good service. There's the customer desired level, which includes advice on care, maintenance, perhaps additional opportunities. And there is the unexpected level of service, which is really going the extra mile. And it's only with the unexpected level of service that you can actually differentiate from your competitors. Now, if you take care of the customer, they will come back. If you take care of your product, they won't. I mean, it's that simple. When a customer gets excellent added value, they tell their friends. When they get no more than they expect, they don't tell anybody. And when they get bad customer service, they tell everyone you an example have you been to an AT- you've been to an ATM probably hundreds maybe thousands of times to get cash it always gives you always gives you what you want doesn't it always gives you your cash so who do you tell you don't tell anybody it's what you expect but if it gobbles up your card just once how many people do you tell everybody you bitch about that bloody ATM machine You must deliver what you promise and then go that extra mile, add value, building heart share with every client, or you will fail. Now, added value is an important element in differentiating your business from your competitors. You must sell the sizzle and not the steak. I know you've heard that a million times before, but it's true. It's the sizzle that makes the company stand out. Now, the importance of added value is a major change from the past because in the 70s, the focus was on sales. Today, more and more customers want information 
And the public today also expects a business to be a good corporate citizen and add value to the community. And if you do those things, you'll win. You know, I've often had a presentation in front of, say, 200 people and asked people to volunteer ideas on how they can add value to their customers. And initially, you don't get one idea proposed. Everybody cowers under their seat. Once they really put themselves in the customer's shoes and at every step, the ideas come thick and fast. You know, because added value doesn't have to be a major expense. There's a really old expression that says, little things mean a lot. Well, it's true. In fact, little things can mean the difference between success and failure. You know, it doesn't cost a lot to provide a complimentary glass of wine with a meal or a motor mechanic delivering your car washed and vacuumed. It doesn't cost much and little effort. And research from the Rockefeller Institute shows that 68% of customers who stop doing business with you do so because they don't believe you give a damn about them. You're just another number. So why the hell should I do business with you? That's 68%. So obviously, showing you really care about your clients must be your primary goal. It must permeate all of your thinking. My car deal is an excellent example of how added value generates repeat business. I've just bought my fifth new car from the same Los Angeles dealer. And you know, in Los Angeles, car showrooms are about as commonplace as plastic surgeons. They're everywhere. Now, if there's a fire, an earthquake, or any of the other disasters that regularly hit Los Angeles, Paul's on the phone to see if we need any assistance. My son loved to get those matchbox cars that arrived on his birthday every year. Recently, in a period of torrential rain, Paul arrived at my office to double-check that my wiper blades were working correctly. It's almost a brand-new car, but... It is a great added value corporate culture. Another idea is to add an additional product. Our company sold a lot of tickets to the Olympics, and with each ticket, we included a disposable camera as a gift, a surprise. We didn't advertise it. After the games were over, we received literally hundreds of letters of thanks, not thanking us for the tickets, but thanking us for the cameras. People had great photos of little Johnny in front of the Olympic flame for the Olympic rings or an athlete. We now had very little chance of our competition poaching our business because we'd given them something extra that cost a lousy couple of dollars. Another highly effective method of developing customer heart share and building a client for life is to provide good quality education and information that they can use. Combined Rural Traders, a client of ours, had poor brand awareness in comparison with their competitors. They just didn't rate. They overcame this by building tremendous relationships through their education program. They assisted farmers at no cost and on any and all aspects of being on the land. This added great value to the farmer develop brand equity and word of mouth for combined rural traders, and that led to rapidly growing customer share and market value. Fourthly, you can customise your product or service. The focus on the custom... I'll try that again. My throat's starting to go. The focus on the customer today is critically important. It doesn't matter whether it's a $10 item or a $20,000 item. From noodle shops where you can individualise the ingredients through to Harley-Davidson where you can effectively build your own bike on the web, customization gives the customer added value. You know, if you've got a restaurant, you can add value to the customer's experience simply by extending birthday wishes to the appropriate person and perhaps bringing a birthday cupcake with a candle on it 
if you realise that someone is celebrating a birthday, that's usually pretty easy because they the ones sitting at the table with presents. It's very easy to do, very cheap, but very effective. Now, when Hyundai, you might remember when Hyundai cut its prices on its cars by $1,000. Now, Daiwoo could have followed suit. Daiwoo could have cut their prices too. Instead... They released an added value free care policy, which included free service for three years, free roadside service, and free replacement car when yours is being serviced. So by reducing their price, Hyundai devalued their brand. By adding value, Daiwoo increased their brand value. So whether it's a birthday card or a small gift for a child, added value is a very powerful and extremely cost-effective marketing tool. Attendance at Theatre LA, which is formerly the umbrella organisation for theatres throughout Los Angeles, had slumped to 1.3 million tickets a year. To address this slump, they did what most people did. They cut prices. They introduced two-for-one ticket offers and a number of other incentives, all of which devalued the brand. And they also failed to address the declining ticket sales. But to address this slump in ticket sales, what we did was increase prices back to traditional levels. So instead of going from $37 to $17, we kept the prices at $37. Price cutting simply reduces profitability and eventually it's going to send you broke. Now, our solution to building attendance was to add value. We had added value seminars for staff. We encouraged their ideas and we consequently empowered them to take the initiative. We created a lot of magic moments and to the theatre lovers, they were a unique privilege. This added value encouraged people to come back and back to the theatre. You know, these these um, added value included parking cars, free cocktails, meet the actors, birthday and anniversary cards, priority bookings, um, let me think, gifts for kids, uh, discount on merchandise for regulars. What we did was we added value at every possible opportunity. And all of these added value initiatives were designed to make regular patrons feel special and to build attendee loyalty and to say thank you for attending. And it was all achieved for negligible to no cost. So this 1.5, in just 18 months, attendance jumped from 1.3 million patrons to 2.8 million This 1.5 million increase in overall attendance was achieved without running one inch of additional advertising, and it was achieved at full ticket price, and it was achieved simply because we added value at every transaction. And added value can take many forms. Um, I was with Coca-Cola as a consultant for a number of years, and Coca-Cola gained 100% distribution and a huge herd surge in sales in retail mum and pop stores in Mexico, these mum and pop stores couldn't afford health insurance. So in an incentive program based on stock levels and sales, Coke provided the store owners with health insurance. They got everybody, almost 100% distribution. Loyalty programs are also an excellent way to add value. As an example of how powerful this added value program is, 70% of airline customers would stop using the airline if these added value programs were cut. So added value, great way to build your business. Simple, non-tech, works every time. Are you a member of the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management? 
This is the premier organization for business in the US. I'm the honorary president in 2016. So if you're serious about improving your skill level, your status and your network, why don't you go join today? Go to AISMM.US and join now. My guest today is a friend from Metal, Nolan Bushnell, an American legend. Nolan's an engineer and an entrepreneur who founded both Atari Inc. and the Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time chain. He's regarded as the father of gaming, has been inducted into the Video Game Hall of Fame and the Consumer Electronics Association Hall of Fame, received the BAFTA Fellowship and was named one of New Week. Newsweek's 50 Men Who Changed America. Nolan was also the guy who discovered Steve Jobs, gave him, his, gave him his first gig and was a mentor to Steve up to his passing. Now, Nolan also passed up a one-third interest in Apple, which is now worth $200 million. Billion, sorry. It's now worth two hundred billion dollars so nolan's latest venture is an educational software company called brain rush that is using video game technology and educational software incorporating real brain science in a way that nolan believes will fundamentally change education i'll be back with the great nolan bushnell immediately after this break on the voice america business channel Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Now, this is the segment of the show where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the most interesting business people. We try to find out what it is that makes them tick. Now, today's guest is someone who has truly been in the midst of great innovation, surrounded by extraordinary people, and really pushes the envelope. When you look up the definition of entrepreneur, you find the name Nolan Bushnell, and Nolan's today's guest. Nolan's an American engineer and entrepreneur who founded Atari, Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theatres. He's regarded as the father of gaming, has been inducted into the Video Game Hall of Fame and the Consumer Electronics Association Hall of Fame, received the BAFTA Fellowship and was named one of Newsweek's 50 Men Who Changed America. Now, that's not bad. That's not bad for a full resume, but it's really only just a start. Nolan started more than 20 companies as one of the founding fathers of the video game industry. His latest venture... Is an educational software company called Brain Rush, and I think this is incredible. I've, I've long said on this program that the education system in this country, and in fact most first world countries, does not address um, the needs of the community. It's outdated, it, and it simply doesn't work anymore. And uh, Brain Rush is using video game technology, 
in educational software incorporating real brain science in a way that Nolan thinks will change education fundamentally. Oh, I probably I might have left out that Nolan was also the guy who discovered Steve Jobs, gave him his first gig, and was a mentor to Steve right up to his passing. Now, one of the great business blunders of all time, in my view, but maybe not in Nolan's, Nolan passed up a one-third interest in Apple. <laughs> Jeez, that's like me passing up Claudius Schiffer. I mean... <laughs> Nolan's also a fellow member of Metal in Los Angeles, which I talk about frequently. Hi, Nolan. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. It's great to be here. Uh, you know, that's it's always fun. But uh, you know, whenever I hear my bio, I I try to remember people that you remind people that you can't live your life looking in the rearview mirror. True. There's good things and there's bad things, and you just can't dwell on it. You got to. Focus on what you're doing now, and that's the most important thing. Although, we've, I think, want to be um, remiss if we didn't question your sanity. Um, Steve Jobs was your friend. You had tremendous respect for his ability and his focus and his drive, and yet you turned down a third interest in Apple. Now, why the hell would anybody do that? Steve was an unfinished product. And I've often felt that... Uh, Aren't we all? Exactly. But, but you know, he, he was not a chief executive at that point in time. Yeah. And the guy that invested instead of me was a guy named uh, Mike Markler. Yeah. And I've often felt that he is the unsung hero of Apple because he was the first president and he instituted the discipline and he actually tamed Steve Jobs and turned him into an executive Yeah. from the way he, you know, teaching him how to bathe and take care of himself and dress and walk and talk. And, uh, and I wouldn't have had the time to do that. So I think the outcome may have been very different had I just put money in without the blood, sweat and tears that Mike Markla did. Yeah. Um, was, it, was it a good thing turning... Jobs into a uh, an executive, or would he been better and more creative left to run rampant? I don't know. You know, it's um, it's often debated whether or not um, the real thing that formed Steve Jobs was, in fact, uh, his being booted out of Apple, starting Next. Yep. Next was floundering at the time it was acquired by Apple. Yep. And that when he came back, he really did the pivotal um, industry, the, the ideas that really put Apple to where it is today. Sure. Before that, he had a very checkered career. The Lisa was a failure. The Macintosh early on was a failure. Um, and, um, and I think that... Uh, that he got seasoned with a failure, uh, and I think failure often is very instructive to people, particularly people who are uh, very driven, um, very creative, and um, I think it teaches a little bit of, I don't know if I'd call it humility, but at least uh, a greater level of common sense. Yeah, and his social skills certainly were lacking. <laughs> Well, you know, I actually disagree. I think that Steve had an ability to turn it on and turn it off when appropriate. Right. For example, I never saw the bad Steve Jobs that's been portrayed in the movies or, uh, you know, even uh, alluded to in a lot of the biographies. My wife, I can remember after a dinner party one time saying, geez, Nolan, why can't you be more like Steve? <laughs> so, <laughs> but that, so, that might be more of a comment on <laughs> your social skills than his. <laughs> okay, you, you graduated from the University of Utah College of Engineering, had a degree in electrical engineering. So what do you do through high school and, and college? But you work in an amusement park. Now, 
I probably can't talk, but when I was at university, if I told my mother that I was going to work in a penny arcade rather than a number of other opportunities that I probably had, um, I would have either faced excommunication from the family or at a, min- at a minimum faced incessant Chris, what I did, I actually, while I was at university, I went into the rock and roll business. I was an entertainer for years, so I can't, I can't sling off here. But what was it in the 60s that had you focus on gaming when at best it was sort of periphery entertainment, um, arcades were seen as sort of pretty crummy places to be? It hardly seemed like a thriving long-term employment goal. What, what made you so attracted to it it was actually inadvertence um i've been i've been an entrepreneur literally from the age of eight mm-hmm. um and i had a company that was called the campus company that uh sold advertising uh to a calendar that i gave away to the university's students at the beginning of each quarter or, right. or semester Yep. And I was making a lot of money. I was driving a 190SL Mercedes sports car at the time and putting myself through college. And I was making a lot of money. But I also had an ability to spend a lot of money. <laughs> and so I felt that a good thing to do would be get, to get a fun night job at the amusement park. Not because I was pursuing a career. It was just I was keeping myself out of harm's way for myself. Because uh, if I was working, I wouldn't be spending. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I found that I had a knack for it. And uh, and I was good on the midway, and they turned me into a manager. And this was really beneficial because as a manager, all of a sudden I was managing, you know, percentages and uh, labor, you know, managing labor, training. I had 150 kids working for me uh, on the midway. And I had two big arcades that uh, I was managing. So I understood the economics of yeah. the coin-operated game business. And, and that was, it was inadvertence. And then mm. saw the game at the university and put the two together. And knew there was a business there if I could get the cost right. Right. Well, the, I guess the advantage that all gave you is the major reason that most startups fail is not because the idea isn't good or the person doesn't have drive or whatever it's usually because they don't have the management skills to do all the other things that are essential in in making a business successful so what you probably gave yourself that background um, rather than learning it as an MBA but you learn it in the school of hard knocks exactly and I've often felt that my boss was better than any professor at a university, you know, and, and, but, you know, at the university, you didn't get yelled at, but my boss would yell at me very often. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Okay, the, um, the current business environment, it's encouraging and unprecedented number of people to become entrepreneurs every kid you speak to wants to be an entrepreneur and while it has great sort of emotional appeal and it's got that sort of sexy feel about it it's probably the most difficult path that most people can take on it's bloody hard work being an entrepreneur it's even harder work to be successful now you've been involved in all these startups and you're known at metal everybody talks about nolan as being always prepared to assist young entrepreneurs, always being there. So what's the most important piece of advice that you can give somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur but is sort of starting out? I think that the biggest mistake that entrepreneurs make, would-be entrepreneurs, is they think they're going to go into the big leagues without playing any sandlot ball. Yeah, and, and I tell them, start your company right now. Don't look for investment. Figure out something that you can do tomorrow that is your company and you're the only employee and get some experience. Just dealing with the public, dealing with bringing a, a concept to market and, uh, and, and don't let... Don't let anything get in your way. So many 
kids today think step one, raise capital. No. Step one is train yourself. Step one is be an entrepreneur and don't let the inability to get funding stop you. A lot of these kids actually are scared to death of actually having their their idea tested. Sure. And so they sabotage themselves and just as long as they're pursuing their entrepreneurial goal, they're happy. Yeah, they're feeling good about themselves. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so um, by forcing them to remove the obstacle of funding, they have to sort of face their fears, if you would. Yeah. I mean, it does seem funny that, but people people are afraid of of um, success for a whole bunch of reasons, and a lot of entrepreneurs you you speak to are afraid that as soon as they become successful, somebody's going to come in and steal their business, you know. And, <laughs> and knowing a lot of VCs, they're not that far wrong. Um, you know, in fact, you know, if you've got a good project, um, the world's a very big place. And you're always going to get competition. Sure. And, you know, there's also parallel development. People, you hear it all the time. Oh, that, those guys stole my idea. No, yeah. they didn't. You yeah. didn't get off your ass and do something. Yeah. Could, couldn't <laughs> agree more. Don't you think that um, big ideas, though, generally require some level of, of capital? I mean, a lot of people have an idea where they make a widget that's going to replace something that's going to make life easy, and that that's great. But if somebody's got a big idea, if you're an Elon Musk, how do you, how do you succeed without capital? Well, that's it's actually the wrong question. Okay. The, the idea is, why why do you think that you can raise capital when you have no track record? Sure. I mean, I wouldn't invest in somebody if it was their first first go at it. I'd, I'd want to know what their body of work is, their sizzle reel, if you would. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, raising big capital for Elon is pretty good because he's got a pretty good portfolio of, of past accomplishments. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> you know, and so, um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with being part of a startup team um, you know, the first three to five people uh, following an entrepreneur that has a good portfolio behind them yeah. and learn from them. Um, you know, just getting out of college and starting a company that's big doesn't make sense. It, and, and in fact, it, it usually it usually fails before it gets started. You just don't get, get funding. Yeah. Um, when I was... Back in the day when I had a big staff, before I got smart, um, when I was employing people, I used to take them for a walk around the block, and my favorite questions were things like, what's your favorite movie? And if they said, Freddy, Friday the 13th, they'd be out of there, because (laughs) as I always worked on looking for personality, you can always train a monkey but if the monkey's got a rotten personality you're stuck with that monkey um so i was always looking for personality matches not solely educational requirements but in your book finding the next steve jobs you say that when you look when you're looking to hire someone one of your techniques is to ask peculiar weird and from what i've seen usually totally unanswerable things so what is the response going to tell you when you ask weird questions and secondly how important do you think a great personality fit is depends on what the the job is you've got to have a good personality if you're in marketing and sales that's a fact um, less so if it's online sales um, but at the same time the essence of business is selling yes. selling ideas selling concepts selling your co-workers um, but the main ingredient that I think is I like to try to understand what someone's mental process is. Right. And uh, I don't care what the answer is. I like the steps with which they attack the problem. And more than that, that feeds into the most important, which I think is passion. If people, sure. and, and I like to say, don't hire dead people. <laughs> yeah. You know? They have, they have no life, and they're in a box. You want to find live people 
And I hate to say this, but two-thirds of the population right now that have graduated from college are already dead, and they just don't know it. <laughs> and, and they're dead from the neck up, and they're very happy to sort of turn the crank and fit in and follow a recipe. I don't want that. I want people who are pushing the envelope, who are thinking, who, who because of their passion, anything they don't know, they'll train themselves. On the web yeah. today, you can train yourself at anything much faster than you can in college. Of course, the last thing you want in any business is a disruptive personality or someone who's got a personality that doesn't fit because if you haven't got a harmonious team, most of the time it spreads like a cancer and you end up on your ass. I actually disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that... <laughs> You can disagree with me all you like. I, I fight with all sorts of people, mainly wives, but apart from that. Here's, here's, here's the difference. Um, there are some people who are bristly. Steve Jobs is bristly. Yep. You know? Yep. Um, but if you wanted a certain problem solved, he could solve it. And sometimes the smartest person in the room who's constantly telling you they're the smartest person in the room, that's obnoxious. Yeah. But when the chips are down... You want the smartest person in the room. And so I have this attitude that I can always put someone where they're a little bit obnoxious. I can mitigate that by putting them in a different building, putting them in the basement, putting, you know, <laughs> having them on the night shift. Um, and and um, I want the best people for the job. And I... I'm very, well, let me just say that I don't like people who are offended. Yeah. I, I just say, grow up, you know, the, the stuff that's going on in college campuses now and political correctness and all that, you're, you're creating a bunch of babies. And, and, you know, I, right now, one of the things that I try to do is if people take offense at everything that's a red flag yeah like i agree yeah and, yeah just you know, i want grown-ups <laughs> i want strong <laughs> tough you know people who who have a thick skin and go, yeah we'll go to the mat for what they believe exactly yeah so you've had careers in several areas Gaming, kids' entertainment, restaurants, etc. But all, all essentially using gaming to create customer interaction and involvement. And well, not all. You know, I did the first automobile navigation system, ETAC. Right. That was totally utilitarian. First shopping system. Um, and while there was user interface constructs that may be considered similar to gaming, yeah, uh, they really weren't games. They were they were functionalities. Okay, so your excursion into education through Brain Rush, it appears to hold um, a special appeal to you from what I've read um, and, I've, and what I've heard at, um, at Metal. What, um, why is Brain Rush so important to you? Well, I have, I have eight children. So I've been to Baxter's Tool Night and sat on the little desks. I have five sons. Um, who are, I guess the best I could describe them as, they're disruptive students. Yeah. And they're all really smart, and they just bristled at the environment that they had to deal with in school. And, um, and, it, and we were a very, very teaching household. We, we, we talked about a lot of things from history to philosophy and, and, uh, and they, and as a result, they very often would come back and say, I got a seat in this class and I know more than the teacher. Yep. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I think I teach intellectual arrogance with my kids too, <laughs> but for good or bad or ill. Yeah, that's good. Yep. But anyway, um, but for example, my youngest son, 
started his company the day he graduated from high school. Right. And we fought for two years to keep him in high school because he felt that he was wasting his time. Yeah. And he now has a company that will do a couple million dollars this year and, you know, employs seven people and uh, is doing very nicely um, and is a tremendous programmer. Um, and I, uh, you know, my, uh, my second oldest son just did a Kickstarter, raised $150,000 on a product that he designed. Um, and he had exactly three quarters of college. Yep. You know, and, and so, you know, it's a, um, it's a thing where I think that school right now is so dysfunctional on so many levels. I mean, we've reinvented uh, indentured servitude. Yeah. Okay. And uh, graduating with a with a college degree and owing a hundred thousand dollars, I think is is madness. Uh, it's ridiculous. Lunacy. And it's lunacy, and I just feel like today. Um, you can learn so much faster and, and, you know, with based on the brain science, we can teach almost any subject 10 times faster than a classroom uh, at essentially zero incremental cost. I mean, we, we charge something, but it's not very much. And I just think that, uh, that we have to rethink the whole thing. I, I think it's ridiculous that we have such a bloated system of both on college and high school that we can't be twice as effective at half the half the expenditure. Yeah, and um, and I I just yell that at the top of my lungs, and it's not necessarily you know if it's and it's just not me. I've got you know there's all kinds of really great software systems out there. It's just that today's school, high school and college, are so entrenched in the metrics of 100 years ago, they don't realize they haven't figured out that the internet exists, really. Yeah, yeah. And the so, whole thing needs to be retooled. Uh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a great um, believer that the education system is, is really failing, but is it failing, is it failing everybody? I, I, my main beef's been with people who are creative, where it sort of belts the hell out of your creativity and tells you that, you know, you shouldn't do any of those things. They're things you should do as a periphery. Don't be a musician. Go and learn STEM subjects. And if you want to be a musician, do that later, or you want to be a great artist. So I think it really fails the arts. Um, How badly does it fail um, STEM subjects? Pretty badly, um, just because it's inefficient. Um, the STEM subjects are harder uh, in general yeah. uh, because of the methodology. They don't need to be that hard. Um, the best way to teach STEM, particularly physics and math, is or projects. And, uh, and I think that... Uh, if you look at today's high school, they don't even have, you know, auto shop anymore. Yep. And that, I believe, is a, is a cruel truncation. Um, how, many, how many high schools require you to do a YouTube video in order to graduate? None. Um, how many English classes require you to publish a short story on Kindle singles? None. All of these things should be part of the arsenal of tools kids graduate from high school with, let alone college. Sure. Is it a failure of... Is it a failure of the system or... Well, it's obviously a failure of the system. Is it? Is it because um, they just haven't caught up with haven't kept up with technology and with new techniques or is it because they try to level the playing field for every student? Both. It's really, it's really a combination of both. And it's also a, a problem of credentialing. Um, you know, in order to um, really succeed, um, a lot of people feel that you have to have credentials. They're still, you know, working for the government, working for certain things. 
you need a credential. Yeah. And so what that does is that's the gatekeeper for a whole series of jobs. And uh, it's just wrong. It, uh, you know, I, wouldn't, I would no more care about what the grades of a, of a potential employee is coming to me than fly to the moon. I don't even ask if they've graduated from college. The, the guy who did the primary architecture for the Atari 2600 was a, was a high school dropout. Yeah. You've only got to look at the list of, of billionaires in the world to see how many have completed college. Exactly. Jobs is one of them. Yeah. Okay. I, I had dinner with my son last night, and um, he was uh, going, when he finished college, he was going to head to a, um, a startup or something akin to that and it was um, Tim Draper who said to him look before you go and do that go and work for one of the big guys for a couple of years which he did uh, and I had dinner with him last night and he said um, he's putting in close to 100 hours a week he's 24 25 putting in close to 100 hours a week at one of the big two and uh, how critical is it to get a work-life balance and how do you do that i mean you've got eight kids so you've obviously got some level of work-life balance um how, how do how do you balance that how do you have a life and become an entrepreneur at the same time it takes maturity a little bit i don't i don't pretend to say that i didn't have some uh some real uh problems with that let me yeah sorry about that no problem um i can't say that i was always home when i should be did i miss a lot of soccer games and swim meets yeah Yeah. uh but i tried very hard to be there when i was there and uh you know spend one-on-one time with uh with my kids every Sunday morning. Everybody knew whose turn it was to go to breakfast with Dad. Yeah. Um, and and I think that uh, as you get a little more successful, you understand that you don't have to give it so much. Early on, the 24, I, I can honestly say I didn't know how hard I had to work, but I knew that if I worked as hard as I could, that would be enough. And 100-hour weeks were very normal for me, yeah. very normal. And and I think that uh, it's so much better than a lot of kids who have this, this extended adolescence into their 30s. And they don't do that. They yeah. balance it way on the other side. Um and uh, I think that, that you have to grow up. Uh, and uh, kids don't feel, you know, I was married at 22, and that's too young. Yep. But it does give you a sense of responsibility and, and, uh, and maturity that I think you can't get if you are, you know, 30 and still going to Tinder every night. Yeah. Don't feel so bad because back in those days, everybody got married at 22. That was a was a whole different whole different era. So how's the rollout of Brainwash going? How are you rolling it out, and what sort of response are you getting from traditional educators? Horribly, um, it's been the hardest that company that I've ever dealt with. Uh, the marketplace is 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 toxic and resistant to change. They all give platitudes, but when it comes to change, they're resistant. The network infrastructure in today's high school is so bad that if you want to do something really good using the internet, uh, there's maybe a computer lab that works, but to integrate it into a random history or, or mathematics class, nobody home. Yeah, it's um, it is a colossal disappointment so and I guess they're all protecting their ass too aren't they oh absolutely do you know there's there are a lot of high school teachers that don't have an email address 
I mean, that, believe yeah. that? Uh, yeah, I'd believe it. I believe it. I think there are a few people, you know, the the Zuckerbergs of this world seem to be trying hard to um, to change the education, at least the attitude to education and technology, but it's a hard road, isn't it? Well, throwing money, a toxic system will chew up every bit of money that they have without change. Yeah. Throwing money at a problem just makes it worse. It, it entrenches the bad habits even more. You have to be disruptive and you have to show that you can educate better and that you can spend less money. You know, there's all kinds of private schools that just throw money and they have six kids in a classroom and all that. And, and the funny part about it is that they don't necessarily perform that much better than the regular schools. In order to really deal with today's problems and today's issues, the whole school experience has to be re- retooled. Um, look, a data point. Homeschoolers, kids who have never been to a high school, never been to a junior high school, are in demand by colleges because it turns out that they perform better than kids who have gone through the reg- regular paradigm. Hmm. So what? Um, where do you see BrainRush going in the, in the foreseeable future? We're doing a slight pivot, and we're going to be continuing to, to you know, bat our heads against the wall. Uh, but we're doing more in corporate training where there are people that want efficiency. The business world wants efficiency. They want to train their people better. And they want to train their people cheaper. And right. we fit right into that. On a quick frivolous note, um, Jobs and Bushnell seem to be popping up on big screens and small screens all over the place at the moment. Um, who'd be the ideal actor to portray Nolan Bushnell? Somebody tall, thin, piercing blue eyes? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's there's a there's a script of uh, the first years of Atari, sort of focusing on me, floating around. Um, DiCaprio optioned it, and and now there's a couple of other people flopping around. The development time on movies is actually surprisingly long. Yes, yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, and I've often thought, you know, if either the Jobs movies does really well in the box office, mine will be green lighted. Right. Since they haven't, I I I. I think it's going to be a little while. Okay. Nolan, <laughs> thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Uh, if you'd like to know more about Nolan, simply Google Nolan Bushnell and you'll get 450,000 results. So there's a whole wealth of information there. And if you want to know more about the um, exciting educational tool Brain Rush, which it, I think there's got to be a wholesale change to education. It sucks. Go to brainrush.com. That's brainrush.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. To the Bob Pritchard, straight talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel, the number one business radio show for entrepreneurs, this week being broadcast from Los Angeles. Last Thursday, I gave a presentation to a large business group in San Dimas, which is a suburb about, I don't know, 50 miles out of LA, I suppose, and I want to thank everybody who attended. Uh, you're an absolutely terrific audience, and uh, thanks especially to Karen Gaffney and uh, the sound guys and all the people who, who put the event on. It was terrific, so thank you. In this segment of the show, we, we bring you news and often 
address emails from our listeners around the world because the interview with Nolan was a little not longer than usual. We'll address an email. During the week, I received an email from Joanne Elliott, a computer analyst from Hoboken, New Jersey, who wrote, Dear Bob, at our Chamber of Commerce meeting last week, the speaker talked about the importance of developing your personal brand. I had never heard of this before. Do you think it's important? <clears throat> Joanne, I guess it depends to some degree on what business you're in, how important it is, but uh, everyone has a personal brand that reflects on the way that you're perceived by the outside world, and uh, it can affect whether you get a job, get a promotion, get a sale, and lots of other things. So it's good to have a good uh, personal brand, and your personal brand's determined by pretty much everything you do, from the way you present yourself to the tone and content of your emails to the way you speak, your resume, your online profiles, and pretty much everything else that you do. Now, a number of people have a problem with people who self-promote themselves, um, and there can be a bit of a difference between a positive personal brand and self-promotion. I agree with that. But um, there's also a lot of people who don't like to promote themselves. But in some professions, like mine, for example, um, and many people who are self-employed, self-promotion is essential. No one's going to hire a speaker, a business consultant, or a radio host unless you tell people about yourself and why they should hire you. Of course, self-promotion, you run the risk of being seen as brash, conceited, or arrogant. It's a pretty hard line to walk, really. If I had a dollar for all the people who think I'm arrogant, I would be extremely rich. But I don't think I'm arrogant at all. I think, um, I think I'm confident. And uh, I think that is different. But the key, I think, is to understand your strengths, your commitment and your passions, and then just uh, showcase them effectively. Don't sell yourself as something that you're not. But in my view, you should sell yourself as hard as you can matter-of-fact and as matter-of-factly as possible. The same as any brand like a Coke or a Twitter, you need to constantly monitor, update and tweak your brand. Ask others to describe your brand. Get people to um, tell you what they, they think of you, how, how you come across. Um, Google yourself. Have a look what people might be saying about you and see how others talk about you. Um, Joanne, the, the bottom line is that your personal brand, I guess, is important whether you're um, an employee or self-employed. The more you stand out, the more you differentiate yourself, the more you give yourself a positive brand, the more likely you are to be noticed, to be liked, and to be elevated in your job, I guess. Joanne, I'm going to send you a copy of Marketing Magic, which is a book that I wrote with um, Brian Tracy, Jay Conrad Levinson, and uh, Robert Bly. It's a great book. I'm sure you're going to like it. I mentioned earlier American Institute for Sales, Marketing, and Management. It's the premier organization for anybody in sales, marketing, or management, <laughs> obviously. Um, I'm the honorary president for 2016. So far, I am thoroughly enjoying it. Um, so if you've joined lately, going to AISMM.US. Thank you. In the meanwhile, remember, if you're not really pushing the envelope, I mean really pushing the envelope, and if you're not living right on that razor edge, then you're taking up too much space. Get out of the fucking road and let somebody who really wants to succeed go through. You know, it's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can do the ordinary and you don't want to be just anybody. This is Bob Pritchard. I look forward to your company again next week when I will be bringing the program to you from Las Vegas. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.